Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to inspire you to follow Christ, and to convict you to lead a consecrated life. Do you know what the Trinity is? Could you explain it to someone else, or is it just a confusing collection of impenetrable statements hidden under a cloud of fog? In his recent book, Professor Dale Tuggy seeks to clarify everyone's perceptions of the various Trinity theories so that we can have productive conversation on this subject. He delves deep into the various key concepts, like explaining various ways of thinking about persons and essence to get a clear understanding of what it is we're saying. Whether you believe in the Trinity or not, this interview will help you understand how to have a more focused and profitable conversation on this important doctrine. Here now is interview number 24, What is the Trinity with Dale Tuggy? Professor Tuggy, welcome to Restitutio. Thanks for having me, Sean. It's great to be here. I wanted to ask you some questions about your book, and it's called What is the Trinity? Subtitle, Thinking About the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And to start, I wanted to ask, why did you decide to write this book? Well, Sean, I've been thinking about this as an academic for something like 19 years, and the longer I've been doing it, it just has bothered me more and more that popular discourse on the Trinity is just a big mud pit of confusion. Uh, Every so often, apologists and theologians bitterly complain that no one understands the Trinity and even that most Christians have officially heretical views most of the time. And they're right. (laughs) Confusion is just the status quo on this topic. But in my view, apologists and theologians haven't done enough to help people work their way through it. I started really tackling it as a philosopher, like I said, around 1998 because philosophers had started to give uh, precise theories. These are Christian philosophers, not people objecting to the Trinity. They, uh-huh. they come along and say, well, well, if we just interpret the claims in this way, this way, and this way, then we can show that it's logically consistent. And then someone else comes along and says, no, that's heresy, or no, that's, that's got some theological problem, or it's not really consistent after all. So a couple of years ago, in the course of doing my uh, Trinity's blog, I started doing a blog series, and it was called 10 Steps Towards Becoming Less Confused About the Trinity. And I just said to myself, there are some common distinctions and some basic historical information that's just not out there. Well, it's not, it's not out there for the public. It's out there for scholars only. And so I came up with 10 of what I claim are indisputable logical distinctions or historical facts that if you keep these in mind, you'll be able to see your way around the landscape more clearly. And then I realized that that title I gave was a terrible book title. It's way too long. (laughs) And, And I said, well, what should it be? What question do I want people to be asking if they're interested in this book? And I thought of, well, just what is the Trinity? And, uh, when I searched for that title on Amazon, I see there are two sort of little books. They're really kind of like pamphlets, really, for adults Uh with that same title. And then there's like a little kitty kind of Sunday school activity pack thing. But so I ordered all of these, (laughs) laying aside the Sunday school activities with the crossword puzzles and everything and the three-leaf clover. When I looked at the two books called What is the Trinity? They gave completely different answers. And they really didn't bring out this scholarly material that I've been studying for so long. And it's, very, it's really disturbing. So that just reinforced that there's a, a need for a book like this. Any young Christian man who sort of has ambitions to be an apologist or a theologian or a pastor, they've got their own little theory about the Trinity. You know, if you'll just talk about fractals or... <laughs> space-time or the fifth dimension. (laughs) Everybody's got their own little kind of half-baked speculation on the topic. And I didn't want to give that. I wanted to just avoid speculation entirely and just stick to clear facts. And then I think I thought if I did this, it'll help people to figure out what they think about this. 
that's your hope that this book would accomplish is helping people to think through what the Trinity is and to come to grips with non-speculative definitions that are entailed in explaining it. Yeah, apart from those indisputable points of history or logic, the book really doesn't tell you what to think. I mean, I neither hide nor fo- really focus on what I think, but it's it's in there, what I think. But what it does is try to equip you to think through things using Scripture and just yeah. responsibly using the mind that God gave you. As far as I could tell, a lot of folks today are afraid to look under the hood of the Trinity for fear that they may fall into heresy. Why do you think that that fear isn't rational? It's not rational for Christians. Look, we've been given Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He's made us sons and daughters of the living God. Jesus did not hold anything back from his disciples, and they've passed that on to us. And after Jesus' ascension, the apostles were guided by God's Spirit, and that's how we got the New Testament. So... It makes no sense for God's children to be afraid of digging into apostolic teaching about the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. God's told us that we're supposed to love Him with all our mind, with all our strength. And look, that just means we have to sit down and do some hard thinking and some studying on this topic. We shouldn't think that God is hiding behind the door. He's going to club you like a baby seal if you make a few mistakes (laughs) along the way. His, His grace enables Him to tolerate mistakes and to correct them. And so, really, we should just uh, happily dig in and not be afraid. On page 23, you write, quote, A parrot can repeat formulas, but a Christian is supposed to be more than a repeater, namely, a believer in divinely revealed truths, end quote. Are you saying that we need to understand the Trinity in order to believe it? For example, I believe in electricity, but I don't understand how it works, and yet I can still flip the switch on. So I think a lot of people would say, well, I don't really need to understand how the Trinity works in order to believe in it. That's a great question, Sean. Yeah, the term understanding is really a slippery one. So clearly there are many truths which we can believe and which we even know, even though we can't explain those truths. So, you know, a thousand years ago, they knew that if you put a white person out in the sun, they're going to get a sunburn. So Uh they knew that sun exposure causes sunburn, they really did not know how this happens at all. I don't even know how it happens. I mean, it has something to do with radiation. <laughs> something to do with being Irish, I think, <laughs> in my case. <laughs> well, yeah, whiteness is clearly a handicap, you know, because yeah. we, we drop like flies from uh, skin cancer. But, um, I mean, as far as how this happens, there, you know, it has something to do with a certain bandwidth of radiation coming from the sun and the way this interacts with our cells. Yeah, but before we even knew we had cells, uh, people knew that sun exposure causes sunburn. So it's clearly right that you can know something to be so and not be able to explain why it's so. Or if you'd like, uh, you can know that something works without knowing how it works. That's a closely related point. But on the other hand, understanding can just mean mentally following or mentally grasping what somebody is saying. So I used to have a job working in California in a kind of food service job, and some of my coworkers were uh, Mexican immigrants. Sometimes uh, they, they're perfectly fluent in English, uh, but sometimes they really don't know any English. And so you'd be working with them, you know, give them directions, you know, please pass the uh, oil or something. And they would just kind of smile and nod at you. <laughs> and you realize, oh, the poor guy, you know, he has no idea what I'm saying, but he's, he, he's just trying to be friendly and move along. And I really became uh, even more sympathetic when I went to Scotland on a trip in the early 2000s. Yeah, what language do they speak over there? Nobody knows. Uh, <laughs> actually, it's English, but uh, they do some very Is that interesting English? things. Yeah, very interesting things with English over there. And so I remember you know, being in Edinburgh or Glasgow, and uh, I would go up to somebody and ask them directions. And they would say something to me, and I'd say, what? Like an idiot. And they'd say it again, and and maybe I'd say, what, one more time? But after I said what a couple of times, I would just kind of nod and pretend that I understood it and, you know, walk away as if I knew where I was going. (laughs) And then I would just be lost for a while. So... 
I didn't actually, you know, agree with what they were saying. They might have told me that the museum is, you know, two miles down this road. And I'm nodding like an idiot because I don't understand them. And, and then I go, I head off in the other direction, which must have been amusing to them. Um, but I mean, I didn't really agree with what they were saying because I didn't understand what they were saying. So I just sort of pretended to agree with it. So, yeah, in this sense, you have to understand the meaning of Trinitarian formulas, of Trinitarian confessions, if you're going to actually believe them. Otherwise, you're just going to smile and nod and wander off and sort of think whatever you're going to think. Uh, of course, understanding can be less than perfect. There are a lot of things we understand, but not perfectly. In fact, I mean, what do we understand perfectly, really? <laughs> we already gave an example. You know, I understand that the sun causing sunburn has something to do with certain bandwidth of radiation coming from the sun and how it interacts with our cells. And I'm pretty sure that's correct, but that's far from full understanding. So um, how does this relate to the Trinity? Well, as I discuss in one of my chapters, some people think that you just really can't understand it. They're only just terribly bad analogies. And there's no way to get beyond the bad analogies either. Some people think this is just inevitable and, and maybe even that it's a good thing, but it's hard to see how it's a good thing. Okay. Coming back to the example I used of electricity there, that I, I think I've heard other people use that one as well. You would say that saying you believe in the Trinity doesn't actually mean anything if you don't understand what, what is entailed in that statement. In other words... Uh, you use this example later on in the book, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly, but Opie is the dopey. Right. <laughs> yeah, I give, I give this imaginary um, thought experiment involving a cult leader. The, the thing about mysteries that can't be understood is this. When you encounter them in other religions, like in Buddhism, for instance, where there are similar claims, or in Hinduism, when someone says there's a super important doctrine and, oh, and when you ask questions, they have no answers. They can't tell you what it really amounts to. Right. You're like, oh, come on, go pull the other leg. Like you're, you're not taking me seriously. Like I had a serious question and, and you're just refusing to answer. Well, that's kind of convenient. So with other people's mysteries, this just, you know, seems like kind of a pitiful move. It's harder when it comes to mysteries that are beloved by, by us, the people who are correct and, you know, we just get used to them and we find them sort of familiar and comforting. And we can't understand why people keep sort of not being impressed. Doing work in philosophy sort of helped me to put on different mindsets in this regard. I think there's a lot of assuming that the experts know what the Trinity is. So like, hey, somebody understands this. I just know that I'm supposed to say these words. But let's face it, if you're, if you're confessing Opie is a dopey, that doesn't mean anything. And if you're saying, okay, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are three persons in one usia, and you don't know what person means, you don't know what usia means, and you're not even making any effort at all to offer an understanding of that, the content of your confession is really no more than the example you gave of the parrot, where it's just like, I believe in the Trinity. But like... It should, those are just words. There is nothing actually there yeah. underneath it. Yeah, and in my example, I mean, my example is simplistic on purpose. You know, this is just a silly cult leader who's just making stuff up as he goes along. Right. And uh, just demanding that his disciples kind of just repeat what he says and not ask too many questions. And the Trinity's not like that. It's not like some pope or something. Just, hey, I got a crazy idea. Why don't we say this? Right. And we're not going to tell anybody what it means. And but you're right. A lot of people assume that the experts do understand it and, and are able to make sense of it. And that's what I've been doing for the last 19 years is just latching on to any expert I can find, grabbing them by the lapels and say, please tell me what this means. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, it seems like that's a lot of what this book is focused on is really opening the hood of the, the Trinity car and looking at how it works and saying, all right, these are words, here are the possible definitions that people have. If you're going to believe in this, then you have to pick one of them. Yeah. Because otherwise, you don't really believe in it, because you're, you're just saying words. Uh, let's talk about the origin of the word Trinity. Some critics say that the Trinity can't be valid since that word never occurs in the Bible. Do you think they're right? 
No, I don't think that's a good argument. I mean, there is a good point that might be lying behind the question, which is if the authors of the New Testament are Trinitarians, it's kind of surprising that they don't have the word Trinity or just some word that's dedicated to referring to this tripersonal God. And they don't have a word like that. New Testament scholars will tell you that the word God in the New Testament almost always means the Father in a tiny handful of cases can refer to the Son, but neither God nor any term refers to the Trinity there. But by itself, right, but as an objection to the Trinity, this doesn't get us anywhere. Look, no English words are in the Bible, so but we still think it's okay to use English and Chinese and German, etc., even Pig Latin if you really insist on it. And there are a lot of important theological words like omniscience or divine necessity, things like that. Those terms aren't in the Bible either. So what we all do reasonably is we accept or reject theological words based on their usefulness. Is this word clear enough? Is it, are, are we able to communicate something true using this word? If the answers are yes, then we should use this word <laughs> because we're trying to express the truths of the Bible. So the real question is, does the word Trinity help us to express what's taught in the Bible? I think it's a waste of time to argue about words per se. Right. I mean, the real issue is the content of biblical teaching. Mm-hmm. Now, what would you say is the difference between Trinity and Trinity? There is a, a page early on where you define a number of terms, especially the capitalized version versus the lowercase version. So Trinity with a capital T versus Trinity with a lower T, because that's an important distinction that you make. Yeah, this is all in chapter three. So the capital T term Trinity is a singular referring term. And the lowercase t trinity, or I suggest the word triad, is a plural referring term. So think about the English phrase, the gang. And suppose this is what Sean Finnegan and his two best friends call themselves. Sean, John, and Ron, they call themselves the gang. It makes him feel tough. Uh, And then you could, if you have this term, you can say true things like the gang went to lunch the other day. The gang likes to high five each other. Uh, the gang hang, hangs out as often as they can, and so on. And so that's an example of a plural referring term. It refers, it refers not to a bean, but to three beans. Now suppose there's a pro wrestler, and he calls himself the gang. That's an example of a singular referring term. There's just some highly tattooed man, and it refers to him. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, say your wife knows about the gang. She knows about you and your two friends, and also she's a pro wrestling fan. Uh, And so she talks about that, too. I know this is hard to imagine because your wife is a highly intelligent lady and uh, cultured (laughs) and literate. You know, if if she's talking about these two subjects, there could be some confusion uh, whether we're using the term as a singular referring term or as a plural referring term. So with the term Trinity, the situation is actually more confusing than that. Because the example I just gave, there were two totally different subjects, you know, you and your two friends and then this pro wrestler guy. I mean, usually you're not going to be talking about these two things. So hardly ever is there going to be any confusion. What happened with the term Trinity is, and this is trios in Greek and Trinitas in Latin. Mm -hmm. This term was introduced in the late 100s by somebody and it was used as a plural referring term. So this is what I call the lowercase t Trinity. It just refers to God, his son, and his spirit. So notice that on this usage, God is a member of the Trinity. He's not the whole thing. I see. Uh, Later on in the 300s, a usage developed where the term Trinity now refers to the three of them together, which are understood to be the one God. So in the earlier use of Trinity, God is a member of the Trinity, and the Trinity are just a triad, just a group of three beings, three transcendent beings. And then the later usage, it's the triune God of Catholic orthodoxy. So what's confusing is theologians and others still use the word in both ways. Right. There's equivocation happening. Yeah. And they don't even necessarily realize they're doing it. Sometimes they use the term Godhead for the small t Trinity, which I think is confusing. But, uh, you know, they'll say things like, well, the whole Bible is just about the Trinity. You don't want to worry about there not being any verse where it explicitly says the Trinity. All the Bible is about the Trinity. Well, 
it depends what you mean, right? If you mean the, the capital T Trinity, and we're depending on some fancy arguments and some interpretations to get that out of the Bible. Mm-hmm. To get the triune God out of the Bible requires a lot of arguing. Uh, if he's talking about the small t trinity, the triad, just God, his son, and his spirit, well, sure, the Bible's all about that. I mean, anybody agrees with that, right? So uh, sometimes the truth of what we're saying is going to depend on which way we're using the term. And so in the book, I argue, let's not continue the confusion. Let's use the capital T term trinity for the triune God of, of Trinitarian theology. And let's use the small t trinity when we're talking about uh, just the three of them, whatever they are, or when we're talking about certain early theologians who believe in the triad, but not in the big T Trinity. Yeah, I think of certain verses in the New Testament where it mentions the Father in one place, and then Jesus, and then you know the Holy Spirit. And th- I think of those as triplets, not necessarily Trinity. In, in other words, like, hey, this is just mentioning these three beings or characters or whatever you want to call it, but it's just mentioning these three, but it's not saying that they're all one. However, a Trinitarian apologist would say, oh, there's the Father, there's the Son, there's the Holy Spirit. Trinity, there you have it. And so this kind of leads me to my next question, which is some folks, especially Trinitarian apologists, seem to think that proving the deity of Christ is the same as proving the Trinity. So if they can show that Jesus did something that only God can do, for example, they're like, oh, therefore the Trinity's true. Why would you say that's not the case? Well, this is where history really helps a lot. So there have been many Christians who believed in the deity of Christ, but not in the Trinity. And in fact, in the early 200s, the two most prominent uh, kind of spokesmen and apologists for mainstream Christianity, that's Tertullian and Origen, they both believe, in a sense, in the deity of Christ, that Christ is divine, that he has a kind of divine nature, but they didn't believe yeah. in the Trinity that is in the triune God. And so just the fact that the deity of Christ came first, it came a couple hundred years before the Trinity, shows you that there are two different theses. And this book really focuses on the Trinity. The deity of Christ doesn't get a full discussion in the sense of the whole two natures tradition that's famously kind of summed up at the council in the year 451. That's actually a really big topic. It does talk about it to this extent. People who think that the deity of Christ means that Jesus just is God himself, Mm -hmm. that God is Jesus and Jesus is God, that they're numerically one. That's problematic because in the new Testament, they differ and um, a thing can't differ from itself any, any one given time. So I, I talk about the deity of Christ to that extent, but I don't go into the full, the full-blown Catholic theorizing, specifically in the third through the seventh ecumenical councils. I don't, I don't try to go into that. I do give some recommendations uh, for where to look if people want to look into that in the uh, kind of appendix to the book. Yeah, the book is really doggedly focused on the Trinity itself and possible understandings of that. I want to go back to something you mentioned a second ago with Tertullian and Origen. You distinguish between two-stage and one-stage Logos theories. Can you explain the difference here as far as the historical development and precursors to this idea? Yeah, the difference is basically whether or not they believe in the eternal generation of the sun. So, and it gets a little bit hairy with the philosophical terminology here, but So the term logos in Greek philosophy could mean a bunch of things, but among the things it could mean, it could mean a spoken word, or it could mean a thought, like what what is expressed by the spoken word. And not just a single word, but like a whole thought, like a sentence, a message. It could be the message, or it could be the thought that's expressed in the message. And the the school of philosophers called the Stoics uh, talked about an inner word and then an outer word, The inner word is a thought. The outer word is just what you speak. It's what you say. It's like they're imagining like something is inside your head or your brain and it moves out through your mouth and goes out into the world and does its work. So according to Tertullian's theology, once upon a time, there was only the father. Now, of course, in his perfect aloneness, the father had his own reason. He had his own logos within him. 
because logos can also mean reason in a very general sense or a particular being's reason. So it'd be like an aspect of you. So eternally he had his logos, but that's just having his own rationality. And these early logos theologians thought that it was impossible for God to create directly. They had some platonic reasons for this, which I won't go into, but they thought that in order to create, God had to have an intermediary who is neither created nor uncreated. And so when it was time to create, God, as it were, spoke out his word. He externalized his logos. And Tertullian's pretty clear that this amounts to bringing into existence a helper, a okay. being who's made of a portion of his own divine material substance. Uh, so a long time ago, there was only God, that is only the Father. Uh, then he says, well, I'm going to create now, but I need to do this indirectly for some reason. And so then he takes a portion of his own substance and makes there to exist a second alongside him. And that's the Logos, he thinks of John chapter 1. What Origen does in the early to mid 200s is, for his own reasons, he gets rid of stage 1. And he just thinks eternally God causes there to be another second God, a lesser divine being through whom he wants to interact with other beings. And so he just thinks eternally in a manner that we can't really understand, although it's by God's will, God causes the existence of the logos from John 1. And he also gets rid of the idea that God has any material substance that he can share. Right, right. Well, this kind of leads me into the chapter, I think it's chapter 5, Get a Date, which you kind of survey church history, and you assert that the full-blown doctrine of the Trinity, as defined in 381 at Constantinople, was not understood in previous centuries. And you just gave two examples of Tertullian and Origen, both of whom today would be considered heretics, even though Tertullian allegedly coined the word Trinity, at least uh, use it in Latin. And if that is the case, as far as I understand it, there are many evangelical Trinitarians who believe in sola scriptura that think the Trinity is not a development. It's not something that over time evolved from speculations about the relationship of the Father and the Son, or how the Son came into existence, or always existed, or what that relationship is. They would say, evangelicals, Bible-believing Trinitarians, is that Jesus and the apostles believed in the Trinity. How would you respond to that point of view? This is a really big subject, and whether they believed in the Trinity depends on how you are going to exegete a whole bunch of passages. But again, after many years of studying both the Bible and all of these historical sources, from the, especially from the 2nd and 3rd centuries, my conclusion is that our ideology is warping our understanding of the history of theology. So we're reasoning backwards. We're thinking like this. We're Trinitarians and we're evangelicals. And as evangelicals, we base all our views on the Bible. And so surely any previous Bible-believing Christians must have been Trinitarians too. And then, okay, well, the Trinity is not explicitly taught there. But anyway, it's implicit there. It's really obviously there, even though it's not explicitly said it's just obvious that God is tripersonal. That's what I used to think, right? I base all my views on the Bible. I'm a Trinitarian. It must have always been this way for anybody right. who really understands the Bible. Uh, because again, if it's obviously implied, then just any competent reader is going to pick up on it. Well, I was in for quite a shock when I really dug in and carefully read some of these ancient writers that we have a lot of material from. And these are people that who were more or less mainstream in their day, and who certainly were latched onto by later generations. Right, you're not reading the Gnostics here. No. You're reading the mainstream. No Gnostics, not even the Monarchians am I talking about now. Uh, the people that later Catholic tradition considered their forebears, the church fathers of the earliest times, or the apostolic fathers in some cases. So if you read people like Justin Martyr, the famous... Uh, teacher who was beheaded in Rome because he refused to renounce his faith, the early French bishop Irenaeus, uh, the North African Tertullian voluminous writer, uh, Novation, Origen, they're all demonstrably non-Trinitarian for several reasons. 
Um, and the main reasons are, first of all, they identify the one God as the Father alone. And they're very clear about this. And when pagans or other critics challenge them on monotheism, they say, well, look, the Father's unique. So there you go, monotheism. And what you'd expect them to say if they're Trinitarians would be either that there's only one Trinity, and so there's, there's your one God, or uh, maybe these three are one essence, and so that's how you get monotheism. But they don't, they don't argue in that way. They emphasize the uniqueness and the priority and the greater reality of the Father. And they're also not Trinitarians because... You know, they never teach that this heavenly triad amounts to one God. They do believe in a triad, but they think the one God is a member of it. And they also teach that the Son is not as great in different ways as the Father. And uh, so they accept at face value New Testament claims that the Son doesn't know as much as the Father does, or the Son is uh, somewhat limited in power, whereas the Father is almighty. And they don't give the later two natures explanations for those, you know, well, he's almighty in his divine nature, but he's limited in power in his human nature. They yeah. don't do that. They'll just, they'll just put the passage out and yeah, the father's greater and they'll just move right on. Like it's uncontroversial. They say a lot less about the spirit, but most of them clearly imply that he's in third place. So he's the third greatest being. And uh, the Father and the Son are the first and second greatest beings, and the Father is the one God. So that's the kind of view you see in these pre-Nicaea mainstream theologians. And you actually see it during and after Nicaea as well. It, it gets ruled out right around 381, as I explain in the book. Mm-hmm. You're really putting an evangelical Trinitarian in an awkward position here, because on the one hand, you're saying, well... If Jesus and the apostles taught the Trinity, then we should expect other Christians who came after them, say in the second and the third centuries, to also believe in the Trinity. Right. But in fact, the historical record is otherwise. You have a lot of subordinationism and some other interesting theorizing about the subject, and it's not really until pretty late even in the fourth century until you have the classic what people today would call Orthodox doctrine of the Trinity, although it's not exactly clear how they understood (laughs) the formulas either. But so you're really only left with a couple of options. One, there was a complete apostasy just the moment all the apostles died, the Trinity teaching was lost, and it was recovered in the fourth century, or it was a hidden doctrine a hidden gnosis maybe that (laughs) was kept secret from the people who wrote along the way. And only when Arius challenged orthodoxy did people start expressing it, that what they believed all along. Yeah. So what a lot of people such as apologists will do is they'll, they'll wrestle around in the writings from the second century and they'll find people like Ignatius referring to the son as God. And they'll say, see, obviously Ignatius was a Trinitarian. This is kind of a beginner's mistake and it ignores the bigger picture. So someone like Origen, who thinks that the one God is the Father, and the, and the, the Son is less divine, and the, the Holy Spirit is yet less divine, comes in third place, he still refers to the Son and the Spirit as God. But he also says they're not the God. Uh, he goes on very, a great length about this in his commentary on the Gospel of John. That's, that's one technique uh, or argument strategy that I think confuses people and ignores the facts of history. Another one is just saying, well, uh, they're Trinitarians, but they don't yet have all the language. So they're kind of fumbling towards the language. Well, it's true. They don't have some of the language that was introduced in the fourth century. But still, if you look at somebody like Justin Martyr, it's pretty clear that he thinks the one God is the father and not the triad. There's just a lot of uh, fog and smoke uh, that, that shrouds these, these topics. Right. Now, one could still hold to the doctrine of the Trinity if it wasn't understood in earlier centuries, if they took the position that it is either on the authority of the Church that this is true, or that this is the best explanation of the biblical data, even though it isn't explicitly or implicitly taught there. Right. Um, I mean, all Christians believe in progressive revelation, right? Because... Mm-hmm. We don't think that all the truths that are in the New Testament were actually really 
clearly expressed in the Old Testament. Maybe there was some kind of hinting and so on. So, for, for instance, that the Messiah would die, uh, that would be a sin sacrifice. That wasn't something that was clearly understood by most Jews on the basis of the Hebrew Scriptures. Although we think it's kind of in there waiting to be discovered later. So, yeah, a Christian can think that more is revealed by God as time goes on. What gets awkward here is the timing. So you would think that if the Trinity is part of New Testament revelation, then really it's revealed in the first century. Of course, it's right. revealed, then everybody knows it in the first century, <laughs> just like they know that there is a dying and rising Messiah in the first century. What's awkward is that they're first really proclaiming this theology in the fourth century. And for a Protestant, this is hard to account for. If you're Catholic and you believe that God guides the uh, bishops and the Pope in all that they do, you're going to accept all 21 church councils that the Catholic Church teaches. You're going to accept the Council of Trent and Vatican I and Vatican II just as much as you accept the Council for Constantinople in 381. Right. If you're a Protestant, no, you can't do that. You think at some point there was a falling away from the biblical gospel. And uh, the question is where that comes. And so that that's one of these big issues that um, I think some people are kind of putting off. Yeah. I, I feel like that's a lot of what your book does, is it, it relentlessly asks us to say, now, what does this really mean over and over? What does it mean to say this, this is... Uh, a belief that is in the Bible. Does that mean it's implicit, explicit? Does it mean it's the best explanation? Mm -hmm. What does it mean that this is historical? This is the traditional historical position. Does it mean that they believed in the, the total Constantinopolitan version of this of 381? Because that's demonstrably false. But like they use similar language, so what is that all about? So I, I really appreciate that about the book, that it helps us to think it through. And whether you're coming from a Trinitarian or a a modalistic or a Unitarian perspective, whatever point of view you have, I think we all agree that the Trinity is a confusing subject that needs to be explained, because even if you're interested in the Trinity to argue against it, <laughs> you still need to know what it is. Right. I mean, if you uh, get into a conversation with somebody, uh, with a Trinitarian, who's, who, and your, your argument is, well, the Son prayed to the Father, therefore Jesus isn't God. Well, that's that's an argument against modalism. It's not even relevant to the Trinity. Uh, so uh, not that you use that example in the book, but you know, I, I appreciate all the clarifications that, that, are, that you make along the way. For example, the Southern Baptist Statement of Faith says, the eternal triune God reveals himself to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with distinct personal attributes, but without division of nature, essence, or being. That's a direct quote from their Statement of Faith. Talk about the significance here of them using the pronoun himself when referring to the triune God. Why is that problematic? Well, all by itself in isolation, it's not problematic. It seems right that the God of Christianity is a he. God is not supposed to be a they or an it. Right? We're not supposed to be polytheists or believe in just the force or something like that. We think that the one God speaks, and when God speaks, he says, I, me, and my— and other people address him as you in third person. They talk about him as he, not because he's a dude, but because that's just the default kind of pronoun that the tradition uses. Um, but look, if all of this is correct, that God is a certain self, someone to whom personal pronouns apply, then this is going to constrain how you can think about the Trinity. So if you think that the persons of the Trinity are three divine selves— and then now you've just added in that the Trinity is a divine self, a he. And so that makes four divine selves. And according uh -oh. to Trinitarian traditions, that's one divine self too many. So in the philosophical literature, they talk about this as a problem of quaternity instead of Trinity. There's various clever ways to answer this, but uh, on the, the more popular way among theologians and I think just theologically educated people is they say that the, quote, persons of the trinities are not, they say, persons in the modern sense. And what they mean is that, that they're not selves. They're not subjects of experience, intelligent agents. They're something like God's personality. So on this view, the trinity really just amounts to one divine self. That's God. And then he, 
the one God relates to us in three different ways and maybe he lives his life internally in three different ways also. Well, the problems with this are really biblical, and I don't settle them in the book, but I, I try to get us to think clearly about them. In the New Testament, the Father and Son speak to one another. They cooperate together with one another. They're on the same They appear team. to be selves. They love one another. The Son is always humbly obeying the Father and following His lead, and the Father is empowering the Son to do mighty works by His Spirit. So these look like things that only selves can do. Uh, in all the Gospels, they don't seem to be something like God's personalities. If if that's what were going on, then God would be kind of pantomiming this play that looks like an interpersonal relationship, but really isn't. You know, if, if some guy tells you he has a girlfriend, and then you realize the girlfriend is just him talking in a high-pitched voice to himself, saying, <laughs> I love you, Johnny. Like, well, no, Johnny doesn't really have a girlfriend. <laughs> he's, he's forever alone. He might, he might put on a front sometimes to convince people that he's a, he's a very lovable dude, but that's, that's kind of strange to think of the New Testament in that way. And so then when you get into the epistles, you have a clear teaching in Paul and in the book of Hebrews that the Son is the mediator between you and I and our God. Okay, but a mediator has to be a third party. A mediator can't just be an aspect of one of the parties or a personality of one of the parties. If I need an intermediary to communicate with Sean Finnegan, that could be your wife or a secretary or something to run interference. Uh, but it couldn't just be like Sean in a good mood or <laughs> theologian right. Sean or pastor Sean. Like that would just be to say there doesn't need to be an intermediary. I can just relate directly with Sean. Mm -hmm. So you can't be an intermediary between yourself and others. And so that looks like another pretty hard conceptual problem if you take this view that I've called in some of my other writings a one-self Trinitarian view. Mm -hmm. Well, let's shift gears and talk about the social Trinitarian view and look at th those who look at God as a group of selves. And you get a lot of this rhetoric among a lot of big-time preachers in Christianity today where they love to talk about, or even just recently the book and then the movie, The Shack, where it's like mm -hmm. God's a community of loving individuals who self-sacrificially serve each other, and you've got God the Father who's washing the dishes, and you know, all, the, all this other, uh, all, all this notion of like the lovely dance of the divine yeah. in eternity past. So what's problematic with that perspective, the social Trinitarian point of view? Well, one thing that's interesting about it is that we're talking about a very recent phenomenon here. I don't even think it goes back really 50 years, uh, at least not as a popular phenomenon. It's really picked up steam in the last, I would say, 25 years. But anyway, maybe this is just some new insight, right? It's not like uh, we can't have new insights, but that's a little bit suspicious. The real problem, I think, with it is it's very hard to square with the biblical picture of God as a perfect someone. So, you know, the God, you know, the God of the Bible appears as a figure on a throne. He occasionally appears as a man, you know, meeting with Abraham with two angels. And, you know, he's a speaker and there's only one voice that comes out. It's not like a chorus speaking of three voices. And so, you know, it looks like he's this unique, you know, king of the universe, this unique sovereign and theologically, no one's been able to show how this type of Trinitarian theology really actually avoids tritheism. Um, and in fact, in earlier ages, and I've got references in the footnotes of the book if you want to follow up on this, but in earlier ages, this interpretation of the Trinity would have been shouted down as tritheism by other Trinitarians. Um, it happens, it's happened a couple of times in different centuries in the past. So... These current-day social Trinitarians, they believe uh, that there are three divine selves. The persons really, you could say the persons are really persons. Uh, each of those selves is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-good. Each of those three divine selves is a free creator of the cosmos. Like, I guess they were all just kind of doing it at the same time, working together. It's hard to see why that isn't three gods, if that's not going to count as three gods, then what is going to count as three gods? 
Uh, now, Christian philosophers have tried some very clever suggestions to try to patch this crack. But in my view, nothing's really taken. Like as soon as you patch it over, the crack reappears and it just starts to look like tritheism. So I have, I have some places, uh, again, in the footnotes, you can follow up and see what some of these, these theories are. But um, on the face of it, the, the social Trinitarian view is new and deeply problematic for a Christian. Yeah. I think, too, of how one needs to be more thoroughgoing in the plurality, in, in the sense of addressing God as they— Rather than as he, yeah. And I think if you're going to, if you're going to be consistent with a three self view of God, then God is always a they. If we're talking about God the Trinity, then that is a they by definition, not a he. Again, the language is confusing. So it's part of any Trinitarian tradition that you can freely throw around the word God for the Father, the Son, the Spirit, or for the three of them together. And uh, so that that can be confusing, but. Uh, just by definition, what a Trinitarian theology is, is that, yeah, we call each of the three God, but really the one God is the Trinity. Right. Uh, that's the one God. And yeah, it would be pretty surprising if the one God turned out to be like a family or a group of, you know, three friends all dancing arm in arm in a circle. All right. Uh, well, we're about out of time for today, but I just wanted to mention a couple things and then ask you another question or two here. Uh, one is, I wanted to give you um, a Best Chapter Award on Chapter 7 for titling it Substance Abuse. Uh, that, <laughs> that, that was very good. And uh, I also wanted to uh, mention that I really appreciated how you put the footnotes at the bottom of the page instead of forcing <laughs> us to hold our finger and flip all the way to the back. And uh, it's, it's a handsome book. You know, I, I, I like the, it's got a nice cover. It's a good size. It's easy on the eyes. So I wanted to give you props for all that, but l let me ask you the big question here. Why should a Trinitarian get this book and read it? They should get it and read it because they want to take a serious subject seriously. The disciplines of philosophy and history have made a lot of progress in the last hundred years that's relevant to this topic, and both of them are seriously neglected by apologists and theologians. In some cases, they're even sort of protecting the public from misinformation. So philosophy provides, in my view, not speculative theories, that's not the most important thing, but rather just careful analysis of concepts, claims, and arguments. History tells us pretty clearly about the origin and development of this language that God is three persons in one substance. And it, and it tells us about different views that have prevailed among Christians since the earliest times. So the book gives you an accessible way into this material, and particularly the contributions from philosophy and history. And again, it's just designed to equip you to settle your mind about these things. It's not a rehash of the same old material like you get in so many apologetics books. Towards the end, I even suggest a list of questions that you can keep in hand as you search the scriptures for yourself on all of these things. If you're a Bible-oriented Protestant like me, you believe in the sufficiency and the clarity of Scripture, and it really comes down to which sort of theology best fits with the Bible. If you consider later creeds to be authoritative, it's more complicated, as I discuss in chapter 10, but hopefully the book will still be helpful to you. I think a lot of my uh, listeners are non-Trinitarians, so why should they get the book? They, if they say, well, I don't even believe in the Trinity. Why do I need to read a book called What is the Trinity? Yeah, yeah that's a good question. So despite all the talk about the doctrine of the Trinity, what's actually standard is Trinitarian language, especially the Nicene Creed, to a lesser extent, the Athanasian Creed. And as I explain in the book, this language is understood in different ways. So really there are competing theories. Think about the Republican Party and how fractured it is in American politics. You got the Trumpers, the Never Trumpers, the movement conservatives, the libertarians, right? They're a, they're a special breed. You've got people who just can't stand liberals, which is a lot of the Republican Party, which overlaps with those other groups. And you got people that really aren't any different from moderate Democrats. And at any time, the, the Republican Party has one official platform. But if you actually talk to Republicans, you find out they think a bunch of different things that are somewhat related to each other. So this book will help you understand the range of actual views that you'll find among Trinitarians. 
if you've got some non-Trinitarian theology, which you think is right, you need to know what these, what these rivals are. There isn't just this monolith, the Trinity. Trinitarians are following certain ancient traditions, and uh, they interpret these formulas in some different but related ways. My names that I use for these different camps are one self-Trinitarians, three self-Trinitarians, and Mysterians. And so this book will help you see these different perspectives, whether you agree with them or disagree with them. And if you want to engage in a sympathetic and informed way with Trinitarians, then this is information I think that you need. Yeah. I mean, it won't do to have conversation with somebody and not listen to where they're coming from and not be able to engage them where they're at. Right. Um, That's just going to lead to misunderstanding and probably frustration. So this, this I think, can be very helpful for everyone. Yeah, and you, can't, and you can't just say, well, the Trinity's from paganism or something like this, or the, the Egyptians came up with this. Look, what if they did? It doesn't really matter, right? Let's talk about where the Trinity came from among Christians at that time. And right. that was, yeah. you know, basically in the first four or five centuries. And that's what's really important. Never mind if the Egyptians thought something kind of somewhat similar or the Greek philosophers and things like that. Yeah, yeah. So where can people get this book, What's the Trinity? So they can get the paperback at CreateSpace or Amazon. The ebook's available pretty much anywhere you're going to buy an ebook. book uh, Hopefully the audiobook will be out soon, also at Amazon. And uh, there are links to all the places you can get it, and also more information and links for me at the website, uh, what dash is dash the dash trinity dot com. So it's what is the trinity, but you have to put a dash uh, in between where the space would be. Yeah, where the spaces okay. would be. Okay, very good. Well, thank you so much for taking the time today to talk with me. Thanks for having me, Sean. It's a pleasure. Well, I hope you found that interesting. As far as the book goes, first of all, I forgot to mention this in their interview, but this book is short, okay? And if you're like me, you only have so much time in the day and you're not really looking to read necessarily an encyclopedic tome. This book is only 142 pages long. I mean, it is really concise, really easy to read. I highly recommend you get it. I've read it myself and I found it to be very helpful. And if you have already read this book and you think it's somewhat decent, please go over to Amazon and leave a review. I mean, this is one of the best ways we can get people's attention and show how legitimate this work is by having a bunch of reviews there, honest reviews, that can help them out. So head on over to Amazon and write that review. Thanks for listening, and check out more of Professor Dale Tuggy's works at trinities.org. And we'll see you next time. Remember, the truth has nothing to fear.